Faithful Exiles is a podcast that explores life following Jesus Christ in South Africa. We want to think deeply about what the Bible has to say about life and talk about what that might mean in the situations God has placed us in. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those held by the host, co-host, or production team. As this is a discussion and not a pure teaching platform, it is up to the listener to engage with the content responsibly. Well, hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Faithful Exiles. Um, my name is Francois Poe and I will be co-hosting today with my good friend Dylan Clausen. Hello, hello. We are the away team standing in for uh, Christian Rulofse and JP Harper, but do not be dismayed. They will be back in the next episode. We are very excited today. We are here in the heart of Steenberg um, talking to a very special guest, specifically about faith and politics with the South African government confronting a range of internal and external challenges and many holding a skeptical attitude towards our political leadership, how ought Christians to think biblically about their role in politics? Should we as Christians care about politics? And if so, can we do more than just simply cast a vote on election day? On today's episode of Faithful Exiles, the podcast that explores life following Jesus Christ in South Africa, we invite you to join us in thinking about this topic. We are honored to have South African Member of Parliament and founder of the ACDP, Kenneth Meshwe, on the program to discuss his journey with politics and the Christian faith. Reverend, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much for having me on your program today. Okay, so let's kick it off. Uh, so for some of our listeners out there uh, watching or listening, you know, they, um, they know the party and they're familiar with your face, but could you give us a better idea as to who the Reverend Kenneth Meshwe is and what does a day in the life look like? Well, firstly, what everybody should know is that um, I am a committed and uncompromising Christian. Right. My life for Christ has turned my whole life around, my perspective of life around. I grew up in a nominal church where we were taught about miracles that Jesus used to do, but uh, nothing about what Jesus was doing in our day. So when I finally heard somebody speaking about Jesus who saves, about the love of Christ, what Jesus did for me on the cross. You know, it was a a life-changing moment for me. I responded to the first altar call to receive Jesus. So over the years, it always puzzled me to see people hear the gospel and not respond to the altar call. Because for me, the good news of the gospel was something that I never thought anybody could resist. So I do not know how it feels to hear and harden your heart because the first altar call I responded. So I am a family man. I have a beautiful wife. We got married on the 2nd of October, 1976. I say it because a lot of men don't remember when they got married. (laughs) But I got married on the 2nd of October, 1976. Um, My first year of working. And today we have um, three children and three grandchildren. The interesting thing maybe I should mention is that for the first four and a half years, we did not have children. We could not have children. And doctors said my wife would never have children in her life because her tubes were blocked. And she was refusing to have an operation. And uh, so when she finally had to leave the hospital where she was, she was condemned to go home and die. But God being God did a miracle for us. Amen. Three children. And three grandchildren, that's another story for another day. Yeah, no, that's What great, happened yeah. during that day. So I'm a father of three children and three grandchildren. And uh, sport, I like soccer. Okay. Uh, when I have time, I watch soccer. I used to play soccer. And uh, there was a time because I was talented. You know, when people look at me today, I'm out of shape. <laughs> they think I know nothing about that, you know. <laughs> I used to be so good that a um, few months when preparations was made for me to go for trials with Kaiser Chiefs. 
I got saved. And Christians of the day said, you cannot play soccer and be a Christian at the same time. Uh-huh. You have to choose between Jesus and that round pig skin. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. So who could choose a round pig skin when Jesus is there? You know, so I chose Jesus and I left yeah. soccer, you know. But it was my passion. I was gifted and uh, I'm sure I would have done good things had the Christians of that time allowed me to play soccer. <laughs> so, but home when I'm tired, when I have time, I play table tennis with my son because they don't want me to play soccer to run, to run after that ball again because they think I might trip and break my, uh-huh. my leg, you know? Yeah. So the easiest thing for me to do is just to play table tennis. Yeah. yeah. So my day, I start my day normally at 4.30 in the morning oh. with an hour of prayer. Yeah. Some people ask, how did you manage all these years? One of the most important things is that the Lord taught me the importance of prayer in the beginning of my life. And uh, I took the words of Jesus seriously when he said, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And many times I just said, pray so that you will not fall. If you don't want to fall, then you must pray. If you don't pray, then it means you trust your flesh, you trust yourself more than the grace of God that keeps. And because I know my flesh is weak, I have to pray so that his grace would keep me going. And I'm grateful to God that until today, we are still going because prayer is still a priority in my life. Amen. Well, that's great. Mm. Um, so we know a little bit about you, and we know that you've studied teaching. You were a teacher for some years. Uh, then you went into theology. Um, could you give us a bit of a description of your journey from teaching to theology to into politics? <laughs> you know, how did that happen? Interesting thing. You say teaching for, for years. I taught only for three months. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Teaching was my profession, yeah. but calling ministry is my calling. Yeah. You know? I taught for three months in a school where the headmaster was a born-again Christian, an Assemblies of God minister, who recruited me to go to his school with the purpose of holding open-air meetings with him over the weekends. So it was beautiful. Weekends were preaching with uh, the headmaster, you know? We're preaching, and people were getting saved. And when I thought I found a place where I could win many souls, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, time has come for you to leave what you're doing and enter the ministry. Sure. It was a shock, and at first I said, Lord, this cannot be you. I refuse to accept this. It cannot be you. Why? Because the community where I was teaching was praying with the headmaster to get a teacher who was on fire for God. So when I went there, everybody regarded me as an answer to prayer. And then three months into that, the Lord said, you must leave. I said, no, impossible, impossible. But uh, the Lord put pressure on me. I don't know whether I should talk about that. Maybe let me just mention one thing. I was teaching three subjects. Uh, Biblical studies, obviously my favorite. Okay. And uh, general science. Okay. And agriculture. Now, when I was trying to resist the call of God. I would prepare my lessons well. And when I would come and stand before the class, I would forget what I taught, particularly with general science and agriculture. I would completely forget what I prepared. Only biblical studies, I always knew, and I could follow my <laughs> schedule, you know, with, with uh, biblical studies. But the strange thing is, when I would step outside the classroom, all that I had to teach would come back to me. When I was standing in front of the class, I would go blank. Okay? Now, this happened for two weeks. And children started complaining, particularly in general science classes. Okay? Because whenever I was experiencing that, for them not to realize I was in trouble, I would take the Bible and teach from the Bible. You know? So I went to, to see the headmaster. I said to him, sir, this is my experience. And uh, his first response was, this cannot be God. Let's pray and fast about it. We prayed and fasted, and the fasting made things worse. Because, because even when I would be outside the class, I would not remember anything. So I went to him and said, hey, sir, fasting is making things worse. Please come and see for yourself what's happening. So one day he came during a general science class. He came, went to the back, and just said, then listen. Teaching the Bible during science class, teaching the Bible. 
And then after that last, he called me to his office and he said, um, while I was listening to you, the Lord spoke to me. I confirmed this is God, so I'm releasing you. So the 31st of March, 1976, I stopped teaching. That time, not knowing where I was going, not knowing what I was going to do. I went into prayer and fasting myself, and the Lord dropped the word Reinhard Bonke in my heart. Now, Reinhard Bonke was in our area in February for a gospel crusade. So we had met that year. So when the Lord dropped that word in my heart, I went to see him. And because he saw me the previous month, the month of February, when he saw me, his first question was, was what are you doing here this time of the year? I said, the Lord spoke to me to come and work with you. He said, work with me? What will you do? I said, I will do anything you want me to do because I believe God wants me to work here. He said, okay, I have two colleagues. I need to ask for their opinions. It was Ronald Bonge, a German, Clive Hopkinson, a British, and uh, Johann Fermak, uh, an Africaner. So he first went to Johann. I said, Johann, yes, our brother who says the Lord, he believes the Lord wants him to come and work with us. Is there anything he can do here? Johann, without thinking, just said, there is nothing he can do here. So he said, all right, let's go to my other colleague, Clive Hopkinson. So he went to Clive, and uh, Clive said in response, well, if he's willing to do peace jobs, we can take him on that basis. And Rana Bonga turned to me and said, are you willing to do peace jobs? I did not even ask what those peace jobs are. I said, as long as I'm working here, I will do anything because I believe this is where God wants me to be. So our leader, Ronald Bonga, again said, okay, Clive will be your boss. He will tell you what to do. The next, yeah, then Clive said to me, all right, come Monday next week. The following week when I arrived, uh, my brother Clive had a feather duster, yellow duster, Mr. Mean, <laughs> and he said, you'll do office cleaning, all right? You'll do office cleaning. I said, no problem. So I got my Mr. Mean and yellow duster and started cleaning, you know? And then and that was April of 1976. When May started, leaf, trees started shedding leaves. And we have a massive tree in front of our office, a massive tree. And uh, my boss, Clive, said, uh, my brother, as you can see, that uh, we don't have a gardener. And uh, our garden is dirty. Um, I want you to start doing gardening for us. And uh, <laughs> I had no choice. He had a spade there, a fork and a wheelbarrow and everything. Yeah. He said, okay. <laughs> This is uh, what we're going to do. And I started working in the garden. If you talk about Satan visiting people, <laughs> the devil visited me many times when I was in the garden. He said, you fool. Yeah. You fool. You should be having a white shirt and a tie in front of a class teaching them. Now you are in the garden. Is this ministry? So I turned to the Lord. Lord, I thought you called me. Is this ministry? Is this ministry? And when I would ask that question, the peace of God would flood my being. Yeah. And that I could not understand. That when I would ask God, is this ministry, when I'm in the garden, this peace would just come upon me. And I felt if I have to have this peace, you know, if the price of having this peace is to be in the garden, I'm enjoying this peace. Yeah. And peace would come to me. Let me say the last thing about this. Now, I had, we had not married yet. My wife was a chemical analyst in a laboratory not far from where I was working. There were riots in her area. So their, their manager said to them, because there, is, there are riots in your township, I must release you early to go home so that you are all safe. And so she thought, um, before I go home, I must go and see how my finance is doing. Nobody knew I was in the garden. Nobody knew. So my wife decided to visit. When she came, I was busy with a spade in the garden. And when I raised my eyes, she was about 20 meters away from me. She, was, she had her white coat hanging over her arm. I could not move when I saw her. The first thought that came to me was, 
you are going to lose her. There's no way this woman would marry a garden, a gardener. Yeah. No, there's no way she would marry a gardener. I was embarrassed. I wish that the ground would open and that space would just go underground, yeah. you know. The, the ground didn't open. So she came closer. She saw I was very embarrassed. So she said to me, if what you are doing is what you believe the Lord has called you to do, then do it with all your heart. Sure. Then I said to myself, if I was not sure this is the right woman to marry, <laughs> those words are confirmation. Yeah. I'm marrying the right girl. Yeah. All right? So that's how I started in Christ for Nations. I started, okay. and then in June, in June that year, we had to, have, had to go to Southwest Africa, Namibia, for a gospel crusade. My, my, my boss life, who was a, an engineer, called me and said, you know, you have this crusade, and um, I cannot go because um, I have plenty of work to catch up on. So please, you go on my behalf, but for two weeks, I'm going to give you a crash course on how to do sound. So for two weeks, I was with life. He was teaching me, showing me how to do it. So June, we went to Namibia for a crusade. The interpreter did not come that night. No. Uh, you know, Namibia, uh, there's a lot of people who speak Africans. Yeah. So Ranat was speaking English. The interpreter was going to speak in Africans. So the interpreter didn't come for whatever reason. So my boss, Ranat Bonga, turned to me and he said, Kenneth, you are going to interpret for me. <laughs> I said, what? You are going to interpret for me. Interpret to what? To Africans. Me? Speak Africans? <laughs> he said, I thought you believed that all things are possible. Do you believe all things are possible? I said, yes, I believe all things are possible. He said, okay, if you believe that, that's enough. He laid hands on me and he said, Lord, give him the language. Believe it or not, I interpreted from English to Africans and people got saved that night. You. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. So I know when I talk about all things being possible with God, yeah. he gave me the language and I interpreted for Anad Bongi. You know, he's an evangelist. He's not a teacher who talks slowly. He walks, speaks fast, and you have to, you know, follow him. Yeah. And by God's grace, God gave me the language I managed to do that. So there are a number of things, okay? I started as an office cleaner, then I became his interpreter and also sound man at the same time. Right, right. You know, so the Lord just continued. Uh, promoting, promoting me until I became his associate evangelist. Sure. And um, one of my highlights was to preach in the, his 35,000 seater in Harare. Yeah. yeah, we have seen God do miracles. But uh, then uh, to come to politics, there is a prayer I used to pray when I was younger, and uh, I've not prayed that prayer any, uh, for a long time, and I'm not sure whether I'll pray that again. And that prayer was, Lord, you know how I love you. I will do anything you want me to do. It's a dangerous prayer, that one. <laughs> That's, <yeah. laughs> That's I used to pray that, you know. I will do anything you want me to do. Now, I hated politics. I preached against Christian involvement in politics. And the reason I did that was because when we were at university, there was a young man who came from Soweto who was on fire for God. You know, when that young man who talked about signs and wonders, what God did through them as young people who were preaching, I thought he knew God more than me uh, because he had testimonies I did not have. So I said to the Lord, Lord, help me to know you like that young man. As time went on, he got involved in student politics. The man who was always a leader in our meetings, Christian meetings, sitting on the front row, he went to the middle rows. And then he went to the back row. Right. You know, whenever you see a child of God preferring the back seat when he was always in the front seat, you must know that something's wrong. <laughs> so he started missing meetings. And uh, when we would ask him, where are you? No, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. So student politics swallowed him. Imagine I had said, Lord, I want to know you like that man. He was my mentor. Right, yeah. So when I saw politics do that to my mentor, I said, this thing of the devil. 
is of the devil. I started preaching, if you want to make it for the rapture, stay out of politics. <laughs> stay out of politics. <laughs> right, right. So I was very, very radical, you know. Now, one thing with me, if I believe something, I hold on to it. I hold on to it, and I'm not easy to change. So the Lord started speaking to me about politics. Yeah. And how he did it, he started using his word. He, had, he, he was very gentle with me because he knew that uh, when I stand, my ground I stand. So he was very gentle with me. I would come across a scripture and the Holy Spirit would point me, point that scripture towards politics. And uh, I would shut it down. There was a time when I even nearly said, uh, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, because <laughs> I felt this thing now is going in a direction I don't want it to go. Then, <clears throat> March of 1992, the January of 1992, I got a phone call from a friend in, uh, who was an associate pastor of Pastor Ray McCauley. Okay. He said to me, I want you to please come and do a workshop for us during our Rema celebration. And that time I was fasting. He said, I asked him, a workshop? What's the topic? because I had never spoken at Rema before. What's the topic? He said, on anything that the Lord is speaking to you right now, what is God saying to you right now? Now, that time I had opened my Bible. My Bible was open to Esther chapter 4. And what was heavy on my heart that time, what I felt the Lord, Holy Spirit was impressing on me was, you are here for such a time as this. So I said to him, I'm in the book of Esther, and this is what the Lord is saying. He said, okay, come and teach on that. For such a time as this. Whatever God is saying to you, come and teach. So I taught in that workshop at Rhema, March 1992, for such a time as this. I said, Christians and the church are here for such a time as this. All the challenges and the problems we are having, the Lord wants us to do something about them. But still, I was not seeing politics. So I taught on that. The number of people obviously received the, the, the way, the message. And the Lord used five scriptures. Because of time, I'm not going to them. That the Lord was really, really talking to me about politics. So, when I got convinced he's talking about politics, I was scared. I was scared. I asked the Lord a few questions, maybe three questions. Let me see if I, how many I remember. The first one I remember, I said, Lord, do you want me to backslide? Do you want me to backslide? And the Lord said, you do not backslide when you obey me. You backslide when you disobey me. I said, okay. My second question was, Lord, if politics is good for your children, show me one radical Christian in politics. Show me one. Actually, actually this was the third one. I thought, I thought, you know, I, I had the feeling the Lord doesn't have an answer for me. I got him because I know the people in politics. Uh, who? Show me, Lord, show me. And he kept quiet. And uh, the more he was quiet, in, in, the more he was quiet, the more convinced I was that he doesn't have an answer for me because he can't show me anybody who's on fire in politics. I said, Lord, give me a role model. Give me a role model. I waited and waited and waited. Then finally he said, I want you to be the role model. I said, what? Me? I don't know politics. I mean, I've preached against this thing, and many Christians who are in politics are out of politics because of my preaching. So how can I? I and the Lord said, I want you to be in politics and be the role model. So now to come to these letters. So I went to a number of Pastors. I said, Lord, I want you to confirm. I'm going to talk to five pastors. The first one was the late Ed Rabbit. I went to the late Ed Rabbit and said to him, Pastor Ed, the Lord has spoken to me to go into politics. What is your counsel? And he said, if you are convinced that you heard from God, obey God, I will pray for you. And he prayed for me and I left. And then I went there to Pastor Ray McCauley. I said, Pastor Ray, this is what the Lord has said to me. 
wants me to go into politics. Pastor Ray said, not now, after the elections. Without giving reasons, not now. He said, I don't think the timing is right after the elections. Then I reminded him of this letter. On the 28th of April, 1992, the Lord spoke to me. And I'll just read two questions, no, the two paragraphs from a letter. It's a long one. I said to, and this was written to the IFCC. Those days, our ministry was part of the IFCC, International Fellowship of Christian Churches. Okay. All right. I said to them, the most important area that needs the direction, the direct participation of the church is the drafting of the new constitution for our country. The Lord spoke to me about that. So after the Lord spoke to me, I wrote this to the IFCC leadership, that the Lord wants his people to be there when the constitution is written. I said, we have the mind of Christ which is needed in that body and process. The wisdom of God should flow through God's servants or their appointees at Cordessa. I don't think you know Cordessa, okay? I know this may not be easily accepted by the liberals and atheists at Cordessa, but I believe we must insist on it. If it is true that about 70% of the people in this country are supposedly Christians, then their voice must be heard. The next paragraph I said, this country needs a constitution that will uphold God's moral principles and not a constitution that will legalize immorality and abortion. Now, this was 1992. Sure. And then Pastor Ray McCauley replied on the 12th of May, 1992. He said, dear brother Kenneth, thank you for your concern and of writing to the leadership of the IFCC. The concern you mentioned about the Constitution and the future of the gospel in South Africa is currently being addressed by myself and several other Christian leaders in the country. And then on the 21st of May, same year, 92, I got a letter from the late pastor at Rebet. He said, thank you for your letter and concern for the situation in the nation. As Pastor David Tebehadi, who was one of the leaders of IFCC, as Pastor David Tebehadi was scheduled to speak at your church, we felt it would be good to give you some personal feedback to reg in regard of your letter. So it was not easy for me. I was resisting, but the Lord had spoken to me about the Constitution. Now, <clears throat> nothing was done about the body of Christ being at the Constitution-making constitution body. But somebody again said to us, to me, that if you are not part of parliament, unless if you are a specialist, you will not participate in the constitution-making body. Mm -hmm. You have to start a party. So that's how we started the ACDP. Yeah. Wow. And I'm grateful to God that we were there when the constitution was drafted. Right. Because yeah. there are some things that were not done that if time permits, I might talk about them later on because of our presence when the constitution was yeah. drafted. Wow. That's, I mean, that's very encouraging, you know. Um, and you mentioned earlier about how your initial views on politics, you know, was, was not favorable. And mm. a lot of Christians share that view of politics. Mm. You know, we look at politics and to us, to the outside world, outside Christian, it looks like it's filled with all kinds of vices and, you know, especially corruption. So how do you as a Christian navigate that sphere? I mean, obviously you've, you've spoken, you know about the snares already, you've mentioned the examples that you've given um, about that young man that you knew. Uh, so how do you navigate the political sphere now with all of these dangers, you know? I must say that with the understanding I now have, with scriptures particularly, the church has made a mistake. This I must say, the church has made a mistake. Yeah. Um, if the church guided and taught Christians who are in politics how to behave, what to do, and what not to do, yeah. we would be having many God-fearing Christians in politics today. So I asked the Lord the question because I did not have a mentor. I said, Lord, how will I survive where others have failed? And the Lord, two things the Lord said. 
that firstly, never attend political gatherings on a Sunday morning. You must be in church every Sunday. And I can tell you by, by the grace of God, since 1994, I've never missed one service sure. until today. If I'm not in our church preaching, then I'm invited to preach somewhere else. But Sunday morning, even people in the ACDP knows he's my deputy. We don't do politics on Sunday morning so that people can prioritize their spiritual health. Okay? If we don't meet, if we don't gather with other saints, it's going to affect us spiritually. And if it affects you spiritually, you are ultimately going to compromise. So that was the first thing that the Lord said. He said, never miss Sunday morning church. Sunday morning service, sorry. The second thing he said, he said, let my word guide you. Look at everything through the eyes of scriptures. Do whatever my word is saying. And when matters are discussed that you are not familiar with, if it's about morality, check my word. If it's against my word, don't support. If it doesn't undermine my word, then you can support it. So it became easy for me when it comes to many of these moral issues. What does the Bible say about this? They say abortion. Oh, let me see. Okay, this is death. No, I don't support. Then, you know, I use the Bible. Yeah. Okay, I use the Bible. But the other important thing that Christians should know if you put Jesus first, I know it's easy. People can say, yes, but I put him first. If you put Jesus first and you don't allow even your job to come between your relationship with him, you'll succeed. Um, look at scriptures again. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 2, the Bible speaks about preach the word, okay? It says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. These three things are told have to be done when we preach. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. If these things were done in the church, Christians who feel they are called into politics and they would do wrong, they would start missing church, these three things would apply. Encourage them to walk right, to walk in the fear of God. Encourage them to do that. But if they do wrong, correct them. And if they don't listen, rebuke them. Okay? But now to treat them as outcasts is is not helping at all. People must understand that you can live for Christ anywhere on earth. You can live for Christ. When Joseph managed to overcome Potiphar's wife, Hmm. how many God-fearing people were around him? He was alone. Yeah. Okay? Joseph survived alone. The grace of God will not carry you where his grace will not keep you. Sure. Joseph made it because he did not allow his relationship with the Lord to be compromised. All right? Daniel was in Babylon. When other people would bow before a statue, Daniel did not because he resolved in his heart not to compromise and not to defile himself. So when a Christian is prepared to live for Christ, to do the right thing, whatever challenges are there, the grace of God is sufficient. So my advice to anyone who believes they are called to politics, put Christ first. If you are a minister in the church, don't stop the ministry in the church because that's what the Lord said. Some people obviously in the ACDP, at one time in the beginning, they wanted to give me an ultimatum. You have to choose between your church and the, and the ACDP. You cannot lead the ACDP and still be a part of the church. I said, if I have to choose, I'll choose my church. Sure. Okay? Because I did not and I will never allow politics to come between me and Christ. My commitment mm-hmm. to Christ is such that I put my hands on the plow and I will not turn back. So the church has made a number of mistakes. Maybe let me mention the second mistake and then... Uh, I'll pause. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible speaks about praying for those that are in authority. Yes. That is a very interesting one that I want to read. I want to read this one because sorry, it is very interesting. 
if we were doing what the scriptures were saying, I tell you, we would not be where we are today. Now, I urge then, 1 Timothy 2, from the first verse, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. All right? Between, this is a long sentence, it's one sentence, okay? One, verses one and two is just one sentence because my English teacher taught me that whenever you see a sentence, it does not matter how long it is. If there is no full stop, then the, the idea or the thought continues. Right. All right. So now, with that in mind, let me read it again. I ask then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Now, the reason is given why we should pray for them. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Yeah. Pray for those in authority. That they should ensure that we live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But when you listen to many in the church praying for those in authority, they pray and ask God to give them wisdom. And wisdom is not mentioned here. Okay? Yeah. We must pray for them so that they ensure with the laws they make, that we live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, I ask the question whenever I hear Christians pray for them to have authority, sorry, to have uh, wisdom. wisdom. If you pray for a thief to have wisdom, what's going to happen? It's going to be a very good thief. <laughs> <laughs> a very good one. Eh? Very good, yeah. If you pray for people who are corrupt to have wisdom, what's going to happen? They're going to be very good at corruption. <laughs> And I think the church must take the blame for the corruption in South Africa. Sure. Because they've been praying for the corrupt to have wisdom. I mean, they have come with some new, innovative, and excellent ways of stealing money. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's so true. we need to stop praying uh, what the Bible does not say we must pray and start praying what the Bible says we must pray. So the Bible says we pray for those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It is their responsibility to prepare the ground and to make laws that are not undermining godliness and holiness. Amen. But that are promoting godliness and holiness. That's what the scripture says. So I think the church must correct the mistakes we've been making. Let's pray so that those in government ensure that we live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So if we correct this, the Lord will answer our prayers. And I believe the time is coming. I must throw this in in case I forget. The time is coming when godliness and holiness will be restored to South Africa. The Amen. time is coming when a revival is going to hit South Africa. All the people who are saying South Africa is finished, now look at what's happening. The ANC is sinking and all these things. Friends, let me assure you the word of the Lord will always come true. God has chosen this nation as his nation. You know, we had a conference uh, with ACDP leaders about two weeks ago, and we had a guest speaker. The guest speaker made a one-shot statement that has remained with me that I want to share with you. She said, what South Africa is to Africa, no, what Israel is to the world, so is South Africa to Africa. Yeah. What Israel is to the world. Remember Genesis 12, 3, the Lord said, I will bless those who bless you. And all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? That is what God said. Nations will be blessed through you, Israel. And then he said, this lady said, um, South Africa is also to Africa what Israel is to the world, meaning that Africa is going to be blessed through South Africa. So before that happens, there has to come a mighty major revival in South Africa that will turn things around, a mighty revival that will also ensure that we get a godly government, a godly government that will promote holiness and righteousness. Now, when you say that some people are saying, are you going to force people to do I said, no, you're not going to force any people. But you just make sure that the laws 
promote righteousness and holiness. And children in the schools, children all over, are taught what promotes holiness and, and righteousness. righteousness. Because we know, Isaiah 32, 17 says, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. Sure. Who doesn't want peace in the nation? We all want peace. Amen. Okay? And people talk about peace, debate about peace. The United Nations, since their establishment, they've been talking and discussing peace until today. Peace is not there. Why is peace evading them? Because they avoid the Prince of Peace. Sure. Okay? And the scriptures are saying the fruit of righteousness will be peace. If we want peace in the nation, righteousness must be promoted and preached about from the pulpit. Because unfortunately, people have been preaching about prosperity all the time, prosperity, we want material things all the time, and not about righteousness. Time is coming that we have to start preaching about righteousness and holiness. That's very helpful. I think just on that topic, maybe, you talked a little about of using force and, and, and not doing that. I think a lot of Christians in our time have a question about the mandate that the government has and what limitations there is to what the government is allowed to impose on its citizens. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about that? What is the biblical view that we can maybe have as we think about what the government can and should uh, do? You, you know, when you have a wrong government, a government that does not honor God, that government will go to extremes and try to silence those who want to honor God and make it difficult for them to grow and children to grow in the ways of the Lord. If we had a godly government, the godly government would not be taking people's rights. Uh, we have God-given rights that nobody, including no government, should take away from us. Now, when you look at what we have been experiencing the past, the past two years with, the, with COVID, there has been so many restrictions, even not to go to church, which have caused a lot of damage to the body of Christ. Now, this would not have happened if we had a government that acknowledges God. Whose fault is it? in a country that claims to have 70% Christians, that you have a go government that oppresses the church, that oppresses faith, that oppresses, uh, or that denies us freedom of movement. Whose fault? It's our fault. If we wanted people that would promote righteousness would not be where we are today. But I still say there's going to be a turnaround. You know, for many people, it takes pain particularly Christians, it takes pain to do what God wants them to do. There is a, there's shaking that's coming to South Africa. Things are going to be worse before they become better. And I think that would be meant to wake them up. If you look at the Great Commission, after Jesus gave the commission, Great Commission and he left. Okay, Great Commission, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The first Christians did not go. They stayed in Jerusalem. They became a blessed midlap. I mean, the Bible said they had all things in common. There was no need. Everything was rosy. And the Lord realized the Great Commission would never be fulfilled here. So what must I do? Raise Brother Saul. So Brother Saul started persecuting the church. <laughs> now, as he was persecuting the church... The Bible says the disciples ran for their lives, went into different areas, and as they were running away, they were saying, by the way, Jesus saves, by the way, Jesus saves. And that's how the Great Commission finally took place. The disciples left Jerusalem, something that the Lord said they must do, but they did not do it willingly out of obedience, but out of pressure. It was when they ran from Saul that they started preaching the gospel. Yeah. So I think the Lord is somehow is also going, going to allow the church to go through challenges, serious challenges. Maybe put fire under our chairs because we are very comfortable <laughs> on our chairs. Comfort, very comfortable, yeah. you know, so that we realize we need him. Now, South Africa needs Jesus desperately. Yeah. And the more we see this and the more we focus on him, the more we preach Jesus, 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 Jesus all the time, it shows that we are not yet ready. But when we start doing that, and our focus is in him, what is more important is saving him than something majestic is going to happen. That's very helpful. I, I wonder what advice you would give to, to Christians that 
that thinking about voting and how to make kind of a wise decision in who to, to vote for. I think it's a complex decision with many variables. Maybe help us as you have this vision for, for our country. What are, what are some of the guiding principles that you will maybe give us as Christians as we think about how to cast our vote? Okay, two scriptures. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts the nation. Righteousness exalts the nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, for us to have righteousness that will exalt the nation, you must have righteous people. You cannot have righteousness without people who have been made righteous. Okay? That's the first one. Then Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, people mourn. So Christians must look for people who are righteous. That's what the Bible says. Otherwise, they're disobeying the scriptures. To talk about principles, guiding principles, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, when uh, the children of Israel started asking for a king, in chapter 17, they are given guidelines. What kind of king to have? Firstly, the scriptures say, it must be the man the Lord chooses, which means that God's people, the church, must pray. This is a, voting is a serious prayer matter. Pray, Lord, you say in your word, the man you choose. Who have you chosen? And then it continues to give qualifications and qualities that will, should be found in a person that the Lord has chosen. Firstly, it says it must be your brother and not a foreigner, a brother Israelite. You will not find anywhere in Scripture where the children of Israel were ruled by an unbeliever except when they were in disobedience. Huh. When they were in obedience all the time, people of Judah, people of Israel were always ruled by their own. But when they went into disobedience, then the Lord would hand them over to their enemies. And then about the person who fears the, who uh, the Lord has chosen, among other things, he says, that person must not get too many wives for himself. That person must not be a humanizer. Yeah. Okay? Now, you have Christians who vote for humanizers against the scriptures. It says... It must be a person who fears God. They don't care. They say politics, politics, because they don't realize God has an interest in politics. He has an interest because the earth is the laws and the fullness thereof. Amen. He wants those who run the earth that belongs to him to do things his way. But Christians don't see that. They just say politics is politics. We want service delivery. Are we having service delivery today? No. no, because money that was supposed to assist with fixing the roads is being used to line the pockets of the politicians. Until we get the ungodly and people who don't fear God in office, until we get rid of them and bring in God-fearing people, we are going to remain in trouble. So, in short, to answer your question, questions that we need to ask is, is this person a brother in the Lord? or a sister in the Lord. Deuteronomy 17. Does this person fear God? Does this, is this person a humanizer? I don't know if he's a woman that has men and boyfriends. What's that called? <laughs> I know a man with many women is humanizer. What is, you, you can coin our own weight here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a manizer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I think it's important for Christians to allow scriptures to guide them. Mm-hmm. In life, in all decisions you make, if the scriptures guide you, you will not go wrong. Mm. So let them search the scriptures. Because we are not the first people to have government. There were governments in the scriptures. To be accurate and to do what pleases God, get into the scriptures and find the principles that God says must be observed before mm. Uh, mm. we get a ruler. To get a new ruler, God cares about the poor. Poverty and people who go to bed hungry because of poverty, it breaks God's heart. 
because there is enough food in South Africa for everybody. There is enough wealth in South Africa to ensure that nobody goes to bed hungry. But we have wrong leaders. And Christians must also again share the blame. We do not want our own to rule. How many Christians have PhDs? How many Christians are professionals? How many Christians, even in government, are the DGs, director general? They are behind the minister who knows nothing many times. Mm. Okay? So Christians are helping from their background, but they don't have the final weight. So those who treat Christians as if they know nothing are making a big mistake. We, are, we have the mind of Christ. If you ask the question, what is that mind to be used for? Some don't even think that they have, they have a mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And that mind of Christ, I believe, among other things, is to help solve the problems of our nation. So Christians must get involved in politics. Oh, that's, that's very helpful. So if, if I understand you correctly, we should really use God's word to look at the character of the pol politicians that we choose more than just um, the different issues that we want to kind of have solved um, so that the character kind of drives. Definitely, definitely, because ultimately... Ultimately, the scriptures say, righteousness exalts the nation. Do you want to be a laughingstock of the world, South Africa? That's the question to ask. Do you want to be a laughingstock? Do you want to be mocked by everybody because of leaders who are corrupt, leaders who are failing to, who are even stealing from the poor and the sick and the hungry? Do you want to go on like this? This can change if Christians can change the attitude. We have God-fearing Christians who can help this country. You look at what happened in Egypt when the children of Israel was, were oppressed there. There came a time, there came famine that they did not know how to handle. They they had problems that even their magicians could not solve. What did they do? Out of desperation, they turned to a godly man. So let the godly out there stop undermining themselves. Let the godly stop thinking godliness is not necessary in politics. We need godliness in every area of society. Mm. Reverend, don't you think some, some people feel, though, that... Uh, if we are just voting on Christian character, do they have enough influence in government to actually make a difference in our country? I wonder if that's something that, that we maybe feel. Do we just cast our vote for, for influence that is maybe a little bit better than the one political party? Or will there be enough influence to really actually make a difference? I think that's what some Christians, yeah. Christians feel. What would, you, what would you maybe answer to, to that? You know, I think to think about influence only is to limit yourself. Okay. Christians are limiting themselves. Look into scriptures. How many times godly people helped the ungodly? Mm. You know that education was, start, was not started by the ungodly, but by the godly. Medicine and hospitals were not started by the ungodly, but by the godly. Right. Uh, the late Bishop Tutu and uh, Nelson Mandela, they went to mission schools. They went to schools that were run by churches because they were the best schools. Yeah. Okay? Over the years, we have dropped the ball and allowed the unbelievers to take over. Now, rather than think about just influence, let the vision be beyond the influence. The vision be to have a godly government. And to have a godly government, it will take time to build. Mm. It will take time to build. If Christians today can say, uh, now we want a godly government, because if we have another ungodly government, the next five years, this country will be, nothing will be left. So if Christians now can start saying, guys, Let's get righteousness that exalts the nation. And we start working towards that. 2024 would have a godly government. And when we have a godly government, I promise you, South Africa will be a marvel among the nations of the world. Europe will look at South Africa and ask the question, how is this possible? Mm. What happened? 
Because God will be showcasing the nation of South Africa that chooses to honor him. Let's honor God and he's going to bless us. You know, if there was somebody who would say, we tried it. Uh, we, had a, we had a godly government, but they failed. Nobody can say that. We had people who fear God, but who uh, did not perform. Nobody can say that. They don't want to give that a chance. I'm saying give God a chance, and you'll see what can do for this country. And on that note, uh, Reverend, a lot of Christians have a good Christian hope for South Africa. You know, we have this view that we want um, revival to take place. We want people to get yeah. into the world. We want Christians to restore in righteousness. Um, but we want to know what role does politics play in bringing about that Christian hope to South Africa? Because a lot of Christians don't necessarily connect the dots. You know, we pray mm. and we, mm. we want things to happen, but we don't connect the dots between politics and our Christian hope. Governments either promote godliness or ungodliness. It is in their power. Our government is promoting ungodliness. So, when Christians want a, have hope for South Africa, they must know that the kind of government they have is going to play a role. You cannot avoid that. Because the government, two years ago, they in, in, imposed harsh lockdown. Nobody's going to church. Do you think they will not be able to do that again if they want to? They will do it again if they want to. But with our prayers, they can be stopped from doing that. And when you have a godly government, they will not come with such harsh uh, measures to ensure that the church does not gather, people do not gather, people do not visit their relatives. No. All these things that they did, friends, I understand their motive. They say they were trying to, to protect people. It was because of the concern for the health of the people. I don't agree with most of what they're saying. It was to shut up the church. If the church continues to think that they will have this revival while they are being suppressed by the government. Unless if revival is under, underground. You want revival like it's happening in China? China also has revival, but underground. What do they want? Do they want to have an open revival? People in the street, in the streets being slain in the spirit, people in the street singing, praising God and all that, or do they want underground? Underground is possible. China is a model. But if they want an open manifestation of the presence and power of God, then they cannot stop connecting their hope with a government that will allow that to happen. Yeah, we were also wondering, um, for Christians who want to get involved in politics, um, what, what more can Christians do if they, if they would like to get involved in that sphere? You know, when you talk about Christians, I, I, I want us to make a separation. The word Christian is very broad. Uh, there are Christians who take their faith seriously, and there are Christians who don't take their faith seriously. Uh, there are Christians who take fellowship with other Christians in church seriously, and some Christians who don't. Um, <clears throat> something that I forgot to mention that I should have mentioned uh, Mr. Mandela, during his term, he would invite leaders of all political parties to attend projects, the launching of projects, government projects. Uh, most of them, those projects were launched on Sunday mornings. Two tests, you know, that, that position of not missing church Sunday mornings was tested. Yeah. Mainly twice. Firstly, firstly, uh, our former president, Nelson Mandela, had the habit of always inviting leaders of political parties whenever government was uh, introducing or unfolding a project, a new project. And those projects mainly would be on Sunday mornings. So he would call. I mean, Mr. Mandela did not mind calling us, but one after the other, you know. So they, his office would call, and they would say, there's this project, the president would like to have you. And uh, I would, I would uh, politely decline. Say, thank you for the invitation, Mr. President, 
but Sunday morning I am in church. This happened throughout this term. I never, I mean, I know some people would say, it's the president calling, you must run. Now, for me, it was, the Lord said, yeah. Sunday morning, you must be in church. What do you do? How many Christians would decline an invitation from the president because of what God said? So I would decline and say, the Lord said, uh, I would decline and say, unfortunately, Sunday morning, I have to be in church. So it happened until they stopped inviting. Well, obviously, the current president, they don't think much about opposition leaders. They don't invite us to anything. Mandela, every project or any visitor who'd come to South Africa, important visitor, Mr. Mandela would invite us. Okay? A nice story about visitors coming. When the Pope was in South Africa, I think it was in 1996, Mr. Mandela again, as it was his custom, invited us uh, to meet the Pope. He had a sharp mind, very good memory, who stand in one line uh, as we come before the guest. And uh, Mr. Mandela would introduce you by name and who you are, what you are doing, and so on. So I remember when we met the Pope, I, I was with my wife. And then when it was our turn to be introduced, Mr. Mandela said to the Pope, this is Reverend Meshwe, the leader of the Christian opposition party. So the Pope turned to me and he said, oh, so you oppose the president? <laughs> and I said, no, your honor, I don't oppose the president. I oppose abortion on demand. You have to understand the position of the Pope and the Catholic Church towards abortion to appreciate that. So when I said, no, I, I oppose abortion on demand, the Pope then said, he patted me on my back. Oh, then God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> Mr. Mandela blushed, you know, because now here I get the God bless you that I did not know whether I got it. That day I got the God bless you. Why? Because of making a stand. Okay, of making a stand. But the second time it was this principle was tested. When the issue of uh, homosexuality was first debated, uh, the SABC liked to have me all the time there, you know. They liked, when I said God did not make Adam and Steve, but he made Adam and Eve. Yeah. Okay, God created Adam and Eve. So that, they liked that and they always would invite me. So there was this particular debate in Joburg. They invited three guests from Cape Town. One was a professor, and I'm told that uh, they had arranged that the recording was going to be done on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So they called me. Please come to the studio at 10 o'clock we are recording. Uh, there are these guests from Cape Town. I said, I apologize, 10 o'clock, Sunday morning, I'm in the pulpit. Then the person said, but you always complain. You always complain that we don't give you enough time. Now you are giving you free air time, now you don't want to come. I said, no, at 10 o'clock, I'm in the pulpit. So they dropped, they spoke to the, the senior. The senior called me. I said the same thing, 10 o'clock, I'm in the pulpit, I cannot come. Then they said, okay, the senior said, then what time do you finish? Do you come out of your pulpit? And what time would you be ready? <laughs> I said, I can make it at 12 o'clock. He said, no, I'll see what I can do. So they went to negotiate because studios are booked. They have to change their times, and I don't know about these guys who came from Cape Town, who had to wait. Yes. Okay? So he phoned back and he said, okay, please, 12 o'clock, be in the studio. So I was in the studio at 12 o'clock. As a busy change from 10 to 12 to accommodate me. Why? Because it was Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Sure. So if you stand for what you believe, Christians, you must know that you have something to offer. I have proof programs were changed. People who came from Cape Town had to wait for me because I was in the pulpit. All right? So putting God first always works. It has worked for me. It has worked for my, my brother here. And we know that if... We have more Christians who say we put God first. South Africa will have the best economy, will have the best uh, peace that we have never had before. Everything will go well and prosperity for South Africa because God's blessing will be on the nation if we put him first. 
So let's put God first, have a godly government, and South Africa will prosper and become a blessing to the rest of the world. Maybe as we come to the end of, of our time, uh, first of all, thank you so much for, for making time in your busy schedule to, to come and speak to us. Um, are there any resources that you'd maybe suggest to us if, if we want to think a bit more clearly about some uh, how we should relate to, to government and faith and politics? Any, any books you'd maybe recommend to us? You, you know, there are a, a number of books... <coughs> On the market, uh, there is this author who wrote three books on godly government. The name just slipped my mind. I'll get it to maybe while I speak. He had excellent material. That if the name doesn't come back to me, I will. I, I will. Um, you send can it send it to us, and yeah, we'll add I'll it into it the you. description. This is not the one I want. I, I will send you. That's fine. I apologize That's fine. for no, no, no problem. Yeah. No problem. I just also just wanted to ask, if anyone wants to maybe follow you or find out more about your party, do you want to maybe just say where they can get hold of you, where can they see some of your, your work and uh, we the are website or so? In, in the ACDP, uh, Google ACDP, www.acdp.com. Okay. And then you'll get information Great. about the ACDP. Yana, I saw, uh, Reverend, you're quite active there on Twitter, which is impressive. So you can find him on Twitter Yeah, uh, I can as also well. find you on, on Twitter uh, at Reverend Mishwe. Great at stuff. At Rev Mishwe, yeah. That's my Twitter name. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening with us. Thank you, Reverend, for spending some time with us. And until next time, grace and peace. <laughs>